Hello! Welcome to Raising Eco Minimalists, a podcast that acts as a community and a resource guide for anyone raising kids who care about their mind, body, community, and planet. I'm Laura, your host. I'm mom to a six year old son, and half the time, I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. Sometimes I feel super lost and alone, and that's where this podcast comes in. Well, thank you so much for being here. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Raising Eco Minimalists. Today, I am super excited to be joined by Allison Mountford. She is a chef and the creator behind Ends and Stems, which is a website, a blog, and meal planning service. We'll get into all of those things, but it has a focus on helping busy families create healthy meals along with also reducing or eliminating food waste, which of course is something we love here. So Allison, welcome and thank you for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how Ends and Stems came to be? Sure. I started as a chef. So I followed that age-old advice when I got out of college. I wanted to start a business and you know that that old school advice is turn your hobby into your business or basically your career and cooking was just what i did for fun at, all as a kid as a teenager it was like an art form it was a way to be creative so i first began this journey just as a chef i just wanted to cook for people i started a personal chefing business where i would cook in people's homes rather than going the restaurant route and that's really from there Everything that I do now and everything that I've sort of, you know, snaked my way through in the past almost two decades of doing this has come from just meeting people where they're at and trying to give them information around dinner in a way that helps them make dinner time easier. So as I kind of was doing all of that, not wasting food was just a really smart financial decision for a small business. Obviously, if you are throwing away, you know, your biggest expense, your most important material, that doesn't make sense from a business perspective. But along the way, I started learning about the environmental impacts of it. And it's just become increasingly clear that my passion and mission is around both helping people get dinner on the table and then also being able to be proud of it in a way that just makes the world be able to have the future that we want for our kids and our families. That's so cool. And I love what you said about how meeting people where they're at, something that we talk a lot about uh, on the podcast, because that seems to be the easiest way to get people on board with making change. Definitely so agree. And I think there's a lot out there about individual changes and it could be really easy to feel overwhelmed that saving the planet is all up to you. And that's not really true. We need individual changes. We need people to care, but we also need systemic changes. We're never really going to get there without big you know, government and systems change as well. So there needs to be a combination where we want to inspire you to care and do what you can at home, but don't stop trying because you're too overwhelmed by how big the problem is. So I feel like if we don't talk to you about where you're at and make things realistic, it'll be easier just to pretend like you don't need to do anything. And I don't think that's really true either. A hundred percent. I totally agree with that. And what we will get into today is when it comes to food waste and having kids, there's so many 
we'll say roadblocks maybe that come up from that. And it can get really discouraging really quick, at least in my experience. So we know that food waste is bad. We have an episode on composting. It's episode 11, and it's with Jen Panero of Honestly Modern. And she goes into all of the details about uh, what happens to food waste in a landfill and all the very nitty gritty information about composting. It's a really great episode. So if you want more about that, we're not going to get into that in this one because we've already got that episode. So, but just as a reminder, can you share some? stats or some about food waste that were the most startling to you as you were starting to learn about it? Sure. Yeah. In our landfills, food is the number one material making up the landfill. And I just, I can't wrap my brain around that. If you try to picture a landfill just filled with food, like I guess I'd feel like in a landfill would be plastic and furniture and all these other things that we throw away, but it's actually food. Um, If you are a food waste scientist, like if you work for the Environmental Protection Agency or any of these groups that's working on it, you might distinguish between edible food waste and then things that are not commonly edible. So let's say like eggshells versus whole eggs. Sometimes the food waste numbers conflate those two things. And I think from an individual's at home taking action point of view, It's important to kind of separate out, are you throwing away apple cores or are you throwing away whole apples? There are lots of cool ways that you can pulverize your eggshells and eat them and all of that stuff. But what I really want to focus on is is the edible food that was in your house before it went bad. But regardless, that, that number, that food is the number one thing in our landfills, even if it includes apple seeds and stuff like that, is still pretty incredible. The other thing that constantly blows me away is that we roughly have seven and a half billion people on the planet, maybe a little bit more than that. By 2050, we're going to add another two billion or so. And we already grow and produce enough food on the planet to feed the population of 2050. But because globally, something around 30% of all food goes to waste, there are billions of people that don't have enough food to eat or comfort in knowing where their next meal is going to come from. And I just think that's really upsetting. And as our population grows, we will either need to find more land to farm, more water to farm it, or all these new ways to get everyone the calories they need to survive. Or we could just stop throwing so much food away. We could figure out the problem and everybody could, you know, step up a little bit and eat what they have. It's a little more complicated than that, obviously, but it's upsetting to me that there is enough food and people aren't getting it. Yeah, that is the the stat that is probably the biggest gut punch for me, too. And we know this. There's people that don't have enough food. And this is not just people across the world. This is people in our own backyard. I think that's something that we don't think about a lot because we don't see it, but it's true. Thank you for bringing both of those points up. I remember when I did my first trash audit and I would have sworn to anybody that our family was really good about reusing leftovers and not wasting food, but food made up 75% of our waste. And it was so shocking to me. We thought we were being intentional about it. So it it is yeah. a it is a big issue and i think we do waste more than we realize and that's not a judgment or anything it's just something to be aware of 
And since you bring up composting, I think what's really important to note is that in one sentence, food decomposing with compost doesn't release as much methane or the greenhouse gases which perpetuate global warming. So composting is better than putting food scraps in the landfill because it's worse emissions from the landfill. But the problem of food waste and using land, water, oil, gas, resources, refrigerant, and people not having enough food to eat isn't going to be solved by better composting, which is why we also need to just stop wasting so much food. So food is still wasted in the compost. And it's sort of two parts of the same solution. We will always have scraps. There will always be parts of food that's that's not edible. And you'll always slip up too. You know, occasionally a banana will go too brown. You can't eat it. Spinach will get slimy. So you should absolutely find ways to compost those things. But in terms of what we grow and making sure that everybody in our communities has enough to eat, we have to go a step further and not waste that food in the first place whether it ends up in the landfill or the compost. So it's, I guess like compost is not a get out of jail free card because you're composting. You still should work on trying not to let so much slip through your fingers. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Thank you for bringing that up. We need to, as you mentioned, reduce the amount of food waste in the first place. The resources have already gone into everything that takes to get that food on your plate. Resources, not for nothing, but also the contents of your own wallet. So as you're letting food that you could have eaten, that you have purchased, go into the compost, you're also just composting your money away. So there there are so many reasons to care and get motivated to waste less food. So I just want to throw that one in the in the mix. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. Uh, Because I do think, and and I'm guilty of this too, it gets stuck on like, oh, I compost. So it's not going in the landfill. But it's good to remember that everything that goes into it in the first place. So food waste and kids. I wanted to ask you, why have you chosen to highlight those two uh, topics? Yeah, it's been an interesting path to that. My first goal, my very first goal in cooking for people was to help people get dinner on the table, you know, and cook at home, not feel so stressed about it. I didn't specifically have a focus on kids, but I was focused on families. And what I have found over the years in talking to literally thousands of of families and parents and adults is that if their kids are not on board with what they are eating or how the food flows through their house then the parents will abandon the plan and they will look for something else. So as I was putting out Enzyme Stems as a meal planning service, I tell people, here are three recipes. They fit together like a puzzle so you can effortlessly use up your perishables. You have an idea of what you're going to cook for this week. It, It takes some of that mental labor off of constantly deciding what's for dinner. But increasingly, parents were telling me that they loved the idea of the service. The recipes came out great but they were feeling like they didn't know how to feed their kids from the quote unquote grown up meals that I was proposing. So the service wasn't working for them. So I figured if I wanted to keep these parents cooking my style, cooking the low waste meals, I needed to also help them remember how to feed their kids or learn together as a family 
you know, what do toddlers eat and how do you deal with really choosy eaters and kids who just won't eat certain things? And then how do we think about food waste in our families, but actually including the kids as a real focus of what the plan entails? And the response to that has been really good. And I think over the course of the last two years during the pandemic, it's been even more important because everybody is eating almost every meal with their kids, at least certainly in 2020 that was happening. So I really just have been developing more content and more resources for families to get them to stay on my service, to get them to feel like the solutions that I'm offering are are what they need. I love that. And one of the things that you have also focused on within that is packing lunches for your kids. And I think there's, I won't say all of us, but I'm going to say the majority of people that raising kids who bring their lunch to school have opened up a disgusting lunchbox (laughs) filled with food that has been sitting in a locker for who knows how long. (laughs) And I am so excited to talk to you about how can we reduce waste with home-packed school lunches? So I actually started that as a webinar. I run it. It's free. Anybody can sign up. And I do it every couple of weeks or so because it does always get, at least during the school year, it always gets a good audience. So I did actually develop that originally just as a lead generator, basically on Facebook. Hey, I'm over here talking about this. And it's just been really successful and people enjoy it. And they always write back to me and you know say that they've picked up some of my tips from there. And it's sort of ancillary to the meal planning service and some of the other cooking classes and things I do, but it was just a topic that was coming up a lot. So I thought it would be fun to do a deeper session just into kids' school lunches. The first thing is really counterintuitive that I always tell people, which is that it's okay. Like you are never going to get 100% success on school lunches. It's so challenging to do, but we need to like take a step back and look at all of the lunches that maybe your kid brings in over the course of elementary school and think of it as really for them a learning process of what it means to be able to have your parent make a lunch for you, to be able to have input on what types of fruit or what flavor sandwich or whatever it is that you're taking to lunch. But Again, meeting parents where they're at, I really just want to stress to any parents listening that one completely wasted kid's school lunchbox is neither going to save nor break the world. So I actually think in the whole scope of your family's eating, your kid's school lunchbox is a place where you should give yourself a little bit of grace. It's just you have no control over it. Your kid gets to school. I don't know how you feel, Laura, if you've been surprised as a parent, like how quickly you have no control over your kids and they're just like their <laughs> own people. I truly, before I was a parent, I thought that would be like around middle school. I don't know what I was yeah. thinking. But like you lose control immediately. And it's amazing. They're their own people and and you send them out into the world and they make their own decisions and and you just don't have any control over school lunches. That said, one of my favorite tips my daughter and I came up with, she's in first grade, is the, she calls it the sneaky snack. So I pack her lunchbox. I'm a really big fan of the bento box looking lunchbox. 
it helps me cut down on plastic because I don't need to buy so many like prepackaged things. And it's just, it's also really easy to make a plan for that lunchbox because every morning I just look at five little holes and I'm like, okay, I need five things. <laughs> and it's just, I find it really easy to fill up without a lot of prior planning, but everything in there is open to the air. So when it comes home at the end of the day, you know, the chips, if she has leftover, the sandwich, like everything's kind of stale. It's not in the best shape. That is like the downside of one of those. So the sneaky snack eases my mind as a parent that she's going to be hungry and then not be able to focus on school or act out or whatever happens when kids get hangry. And it's basically a packed snack. So it's something that's packed separately, either in like the silicone bag or she does love those little seaweed chips. And I do buy those like wrapped, individually wrapped. But the deal with the sneaky snack is that it sneaks into your backpack and you are not allowed to eat it before your lunchbox is empty. So if I have food that I know we're going to throw away at the end of the day because it's a peeled apple or it's, you know, hummus that's going to sit out all day or whatever it is, you have to eat those things first. Otherwise, for the next couple of days, there's no sneaky snack because sometimes she wants to just go right for the snack, right? Because it's the fun thing. But if she's truly hungry and has eaten everything else, it's going to go away at the end of the day. She has a sneaky snack. So by playing around with the amount of food that I'm giving to her and then giving her a bonus, just in case she's extra hungry that day, maybe she runs around, recess was really intense, you know, her brain was growing, whatever it is, I feel confident that I've given her enough food. But I also know that if she doesn't get to that snack Monday through Wednesday, it can literally just sit in her backpack and she'll have it there when she needs it. So there's one little low waste tip. It's been fun for us. We always talk about the sneaky snack and she's really into it. So that is like one little thing that you can do. I love that. The sneaky snack. It just sounds really fun too. And I could see my son really getting into that. The trick is to teach them. And like I was saying, like take the, you know, the, the long view is that we also need to have conversations. So why does this matter? Why do we care about wasted food? And she, we talk about it at dinner and they know what I do. So it's, it's pretty easy to have the conversation, even with my preschooler about why we don't want to waste food. And they see us in grandma's garden and with her compost and all that stuff. So when I explained to her, you have to eat what's in your lunchbox first, it's not just an order. It's really part of our family values. You eat what's in your lunchbox first because at the end of the day, I have to throw this away and you're going to see that throw get thrown away and we feel you know, bad about that. That's an ongoing conversation. So I think that's an important part too and a, a great place to start talking to your kids about food. And if you connect that even to... When we go to the grocery store, look at this money we're spending, look at this time we're spending, this work we're doing, and it all just kind of is a through line. And half the time, your kids are going to be like, mom, I don't care. It's so boring. Why are we doing this? But but you also know that they're getting it, that when you're kind of consistent, even if you're a boring old mom, like always talking about these things, (laughs) you do know that they pick it up in the long run. One day they're going to wake up as like 15 year olds and you're not going to see it, but they're going to tell their friend, Hey, don't throw that away. Like I'll eat that or let's give that here or don't over buy this. You know, that as part of your family values, for the most part, they are absorbing it, which is why I kind of come back to take the bigger picture. And as the parent making the decisions, don't be too hard on yourself for all of those moments where you will throw food away because you will do it. And it's, it's okay if it's part of your big 
plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, progress, not perfection. There's a couple things that I wanted to circle back on that you mentioned. And the first one was, it has come up on the podcast before. So I'm not sure why. Like, I didn't connect the two between for this food waste issue, but I feel like whenever I would try to describe the issue with food waste to my son, I would get too much into the weeds, you know, like, and it would just get overwhelming. And I remember as a kid, my grandparents would do the, oh, you know, there's kids starving halfway across the world. Like, you can't throw that away. But as a kid, like, that didn't really mean anything to me. I didn't really couldn't grasp that. But I really appreciate the idea of when you're walking through the grocery store and picking out produce and how much do you think we're going to eat or does this sound good to you or whatever. And, and it really, I know that you talk a lot about bringing kids into the process with you. And I think that's such a great idea to do that in the moment. Yeah, I think it's just showing them and respecting them that they're opinions matter, their thoughts matter, and that they're part of running the household and they have an age appropriate part. And I don't, I don't want to put, you know, pressure or stress on them. You know, we talk about that we spend money on food, but I try to also do it in a way that's not going to give them like a financial worry or anything like that. But basic understanding that like right now my son's home and I'm like, okay, mom has to go to work. You stay over there, entertain yourself. I'm going to go to work. They understand still the process between, okay, we can't play now because mom has to work because we, we do what we're passionate about. We earn money. And then we dole that money out in the world to buy food or toys or clothes. But we then need to value those things and take care of them because it's not magic. So there's a way to kind of understand that whole flow and picture. And there's a way I think for kids of all ages to appropriately engage in that. And it's just a really clear place to start valuing food. And then bonus points, if you can get do any sort of like connecting to like how food grows, even if you just bring home one of those like pots of live basil from the grocery store and talk about watering it or pluck the leaf off and eat it and just kind of connect to the fact that it is something worth valuing and it's not magic. Kids really get that. And and you can make it fun and it doesn't have to be like lessons all the time, but it is fun, constant, you know, ongoing part of like what makes the, the household stay running. And I don't think they need to be completely um, separated from that. Yeah. I know that when I garden, I, I love gardening and I love growing food. That's something that it is makes it a lot easier to connect because he sees how much time I spend watering and planting yeah. and and he can at least grasp that aspect of it. And so it it does kind of open the door to that conversation a little bit easier. But the other thing I wanted to focus on or go back to was what you said about <laughs> we have no control over what happens with school lunches. And I think that is such a key piece to keep in mind because I know for me, I I do get so focused on, and it probably is part of the control of him going off to school and that's scary. But I think about, we recently moved and at his old school, he had, I think maybe 15 minutes to eat. And now he has a half hour, but 
you know, there's so, so many factors that go into when they sit down to eat lunch. Maybe they're not hungry. Maybe they're distracted. Maybe they're nervous. Maybe, maybe their line was long and they didn't have a lot of time, you know, who knows? So I I think that's something that we, we do really, as people raising kids in this situation, need to keep in mind and remember that we are doing our best and this is something that we don't have a lot of control over. And I love the idea, like I said, of the sneaky snack and that can help. I know that sometimes I've had where we've done something similar, not, we didn't make it that fun, but where he, if, if he would bring his lunchbox home, I mean, that's a whole other issue, but (laughs) if, if he would bring it home, I would encourage him to eat what was left in there first. But yeah, it's, that's something we do need to keep in mind and, and maybe try to look at where that need for control is actually coming from. That was, that was a really good point. It's very cool to think about my kids out there just kind of, uh, not that they're on their own, but without me, sometimes I think about them like all day, what are you, what are you doing? Who'd you sit next to? What did you decide to talk about? You know, how did you, how did you do that? And it does amaze me that they're so competent and they're these little citizens out there just doing their thing and, and they have their lives and, and I don't know. I, th- I think I'm a big kid person over a baby person anyway. And I just kind of love thinking about them doing that. So I do think about lunches as a time where they're in a safe place and we sent them off to their schools and they're doing what they do. But it is a moment where they can see what their friends are eating and they can have these conversations and they don't have me nagging or kind of imparting my beliefs on them in those moments. Like they're just the person that I'm raising and there they are out there doing their thing. The other thing I wanted to say is another great way to do it if they bring their lunch home or even if they don't, um, but talk to them about it. Hey, you know, how did your, and my daughter is six, so she still really thinks I'm cool and likes to talk to me. I recognize it will get harder as your kid gets older, (laughs) but as much as you can, how was lunch today? You know, did you eat everything? Or I saw that you didn't eat these blackberries, which, you know, you specifically asked for what's going on with the blackberries. Do you want me to skip them tomorrow? Or even if it works for your family dynamic, when you're packing the kids lunch, have them there with you. Which fruit do you want in here today? The more there's kind of the decisions and the reflections that they see return to, to being, you know, meaningful in their lives, the more they're kind of forced to decide and explain what's happening. And again, I think it also sets them up to show that you respect their opinions and their thought processes. And then it's just going to be ever so much easier to continue talking to them about food and, you know, why they do or don't eat things. That's a great tip. And it kind of leads into the next area that I wanted to chat with you about, kind of opening it up not just focused on school lunches, but at home. I know that having choosy eaters is something I see a lot of parents talk about for whatever reason. There's a variety of factors that go into it. But what are some ways that we maybe haven't discussed yet that we can help navigate choosy eaters and not feeling like we need to make something separate for them. Cause I know that's something that a lot of parents feel like they need to do sometimes. Yeah. So many things. I, I literally do a, like an eight week course on how to 
reset your family's eating. So pulling out a few <laughs> for a, a, a three-minute answer. Number one is is like old school advice. I think a food scientist, Ellen Satter, developed it like in the 70s or the 80s, which is basically like your responsibility of feeding versus their responsibility of eating. So parents' responsibility is not to get food all the way into the kid's belly. It's just to present healthful options in a setting where the kid has time and space to eat. And then again, with the control, like you cannot force your kid to put that food in their belly. So I think we can let ourselves off the hook a lot with what is actually going into your kid's body. And remember that our responsibility as parents is just to present them with a variety of helpful options, and just be really consistent about it. When I've been in people's homes and worked with people who who are struggling to feed their kids, there is a lot of fussing over what they're eating and, and what it tastes like. And it's almost like too much. So as parents, we can kind of adopt a more calm, less reactive attitude about it. Oh, you don't want to eat that? Okay eat something else on your plate or this is your options. Here's what's for dinner tonight. I know you like rice and carrot sticks. Go for that. Don't eat the spinach or whatever it is. And eventually this is like the longest game you may ever have to play in your life. So I also always recommend having a friend you can call and just like vent to because you need an outlet, but you just constantly are presenting a variety of foods If your kid doesn't eat spinach today, keep presenting them with spinach for literally like the next three years. Like, I'm not kidding. You just don't, you don't stop doing it and then de-pressure the situation. So don't force them to eat it. Don't bribe them to take a bite. Don't tell them it's good for them. You know, don't, don't get up and offer something else. You just kind of have to stay so cool, calm and collected and trust that they will eventually eat what's right for them and trust that you are presenting a variety of options. And then always like the way that you, you sort of put your thumb on the scale is by always making sure that there are one or two items on their plate that you know they like. So like for my son, who's my more challenging eater, rice, if, if it's plain white rice, great. He's got a pile of rice. He's got some carrots or cucumbers or broccoli, cauliflower. Those are like his big, his big three. I can get like eggs and avocados in him too. So that's kind of like his, he's always got some of those things on there. And then we're just constantly trying new things. And you just are like a broken record who can't be, you know, you can't lose. You just keep offering it to them without a lot of pressure. And eventually your kids will start to eat. And it's it really starts with the parent and your... Um... We're raised with the, like, you have to finish what's on your plate <laughs> type of thing. Clean plate and, club, yep. Yeah, the clean plate club. And that guilt of there are starving kids elsewhere in the world. And that's a hard, hard thing to break. But I think if... Like yeah, said, it really is. It is. And it's, you know, there are so many studies out there that have shown that sort of pressure to finish your plate and good foods versus bad foods and, you know, eat this broccoli and you'll get a brownie. None of those things have served us and they've been debunked as useful 
you know, over and over and over again. So the idea of being forced to finish your plate does not set up healthy um, food habits or a healthy relationship with food later in life. So this is, you know, it's again, a place where it's on us as the parents to do some digging, do some work and research to, to get ourselves straight attitude about it. It's tough. It's, it's really tough. And I, I also do always have to say, if you think your kid is like falling off the growth scale or is neurodivergent or there's something else going on, you should always have these conversations with your doctor as well. So I'm talking about kids who are developmentally kind of on the scale, not having weight or, you know, nutrition issues. If your kid is identified as needing additional help by a nutritionist, I am not a nutritionist. I am more just a present what's on your plate sort of, you know, culinary expert. And I always, my other big tip is always never let your kid hear you call them a picky eater. Like if you've ever been at a barbecue or something and people are complaining about what their kids are, will or won't eat, I always just say, you know, oh, my kids are learning how to eat new things. They try new things all the time. Even though I'm burning inside to like join the pylon <laughs> about how my kid doesn't eat anything but King's Hawaiian rolls and mac and cheese, um, but find a time when they're out of earshot because what your kids hear you say about them becomes part of who they become. And I want my kids to hear me saying they're so willing to try new things. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, find it. another place to be to get out what you need to get out with a with a friendly ear. But but don't put that on your kids. Yeah, that's a great, great reminder for us. So you've mentioned your meal plans and a couple of other of the things that you offer through ends and stems. Can you Tell us more about what those things are. Yeah. So Ends and Stems is the meal planning platform. So it's like $14 a month. Every week you get new recipes. You can also search for the recipes. There's a what's in your fridge recipe finder where you type in what you have and it'll bring it up. I have over 2000 recipes on there now and I add more every week. So that is a way to kind of help with the mental load of deciding what's for dinner. That's kind of what started all this. People would tell me they hate deciding what's for dinner. So this is kind of an, a recipe organizer that helps you make that decision. Those recipes now, as I put new ones in, they all have the photos of how to feed a big kid, how to feed a toddler, and then how to make substitutions as you cook those meals. Starting just this year, really this month, I guess, 2022, I've put out a whole lineup of free and paid webinars, workshops, cooking classes, and then some larger like digital courses to go over this stuff in more detail. So that's all really fun. That's all on my website as well. So there's, there's lots of ways and it's, you know, I cover everything from basically it's all under this big umbrella of how does our family get dinner on the table with less waste, less stress, you know, less drama. So any part you can imagine that kind of fits under that umbrella is something I might talk about. So cooking skills, meal planning, food waste, feeding kids, picky kids, and all of that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of ways for people to kind of dig in at every price point and on any one of those specific um, challenges that you might be facing. And then just like all the digital talkers and creators, I have my Instagram going and a Facebook group and all that kind of good stuff too. Great. I will be sure to link to all of those things in the show notes for anyone that is interested in learning more. 
And so there's a couple questions that I ask everybody. And the first one is, what is one of your biggest challenges raising eco-minimalist or eco-kids right now? My biggest challenge is balancing sort of modern culture with what I wish it were. So like a really specific example, my first grader is obsessed with these dolls called LOL Surprise dolls. And they're basically just giant heaps of plastic trash that cost $12. (laughs) And it's really hard for me to look at that and and know that it is 100% trash. She won't (laughs) play with it long term. It's outrageously expensive for what it And then also she just loves it and her friends have it and she wants one. How do I, you know, it's $12. I can afford it. How do I balance what I want to see her play with and think is valuable with this like pop culture thing that I just can't beat? So stuff like that really stresses me out. Yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to that because it's so hard too once they start getting into the age where their friends have it and there's that whole dilemma so and I try to do my best I want my kids to know we that's what we want to do but I also try not to be extreme on any side because it's just it's too hard to have extremes I think balance is is what it's all about and everything's kind of a compromise and making your best choice rather than be so by whatever rule book you set for yourself. So questions like that are are the ones that I always tend to debate over and over again. And and I'm not sure if I'm making the right decision on on issues like that. Yeah, I think, like I said, I think a lot of people can relate to that for sure. So we kind of just already answered the second question. So the last piece is just, is there anything else to share that we didn't cover today? Well, I feel like we covered so much. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk to you. I love what you do too. I think what's fun about what you do is you cover like the whole range, you know, of of ways to dig in. And I guess I would leave people with, you know, I'm a specific food waste expert because I'm a chef. That's what I did first. But if you're looking for just a way to get started, it's so great to just like find the thing that interests you most and just get started. And I think you can pick up new habits. You can constantly, you know, improve or try something new or, you know, make a new piece of the way that your household runs. But you don't have to start in food. You could start in plastic. You could start by helping people at like a food kitchen near you. Like there's so many ways to get involved. And I think the most important thing is to just act on something that you care about and make it small to start. And then when that feels good, then you can add more on. So I love what you do, Laura, because you talk about such a wide range of options. And I think people can find a lot of ways to, you know, start with what matters most to them. Well, thank you. Yeah. Pick your sustainability lane is what I call that. (laughs) Figure out what you're passionate about and interested in, and then just go from there. So thank you for the words. We can't all do all the things. So, you know, pick the ones that matter to you, the ones you can stick with and the ones that make you feel good. And then you'll be more likely to expand on that rather than just quit because it's all too much. (laughs) Right. A hundred percent. Well, Allison, thank you so much for coming on. As I mentioned, I will put the links to Ends and Stems and her social media and stuff in the show notes so you can check those out. And again, thank you. 
Thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed that episode of Raising Eco Minimalists. As always, if you enjoyed this episode and you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a review and a rating on Apple and Spotify. You can find out how to do so in the show notes. Additionally, if you want to reach out to me with questions, comments, reflections on the episode, you're always welcome to do so via my email or any of my social media platforms also linked within the show notes. Finally, Please remember that in order to live sustainably, it has to be sustainable for you. Thanks. Bye.